Let's get into it. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you're a note taker, we prepared those for you. If it helps you pay attention. I've just started doing that at my church because I've seen a lot of people maybe rolling their eyes to go to bed. And so we're giving you something a little more to pay attention. But unfortunately, you won't get to them for a while. The bulk of this morning, we're going to be in Revelation 2 and in Numbers 22. And we're going to try to build the case for something that is very important to the church And then we'll give you a few brief applications that will hopefully help you in uh, the future in your walk with the Lord. Now, before we read Revelation 2, I have to tell you, we all have our favorite Bible characters. We all have our favorites. So your favorite Bible uh, book of the Bible, your favorite Bible character, your favorite Bible verse. And we all have our favorite Bible character. Some of, for some of you, it might be Joseph, because he's fantastic. He's one of my favorites. A lot of you, it's probably David. We do need to exclude Jesus, because he should be our favorite Bible character, right? But we're going to set him aside. He's the supreme. Um, but I don't have a favorite Bible person. I have a favorite Bible character, and it happens to be an animal. And it happens to be a female animal, My favorite Bible character is Balaam's donkey. I love it. It's a her, it's a she. But we love, we preachers love Balaam's donkey because we believe if God can use a donkey to get a prophet right with God, he can use any one of us. And on my filing cabinet next to my desk in my office, I have a cutout of a donkey. And people say, what's that all about? And I tell them, it's the inspiring character of every preacher. If God can use that in the Bible, he can use me behind the pulpit. Somebody made a picture for me this Christmas in our church. It's a picture of a donkey, and it it says on there, if the Lord can use Balaam's donkey, then surely he can use you. So we're inspired by Balaam's donkey, at least I am, and we love him. But the story of Balaam is much more than just about his donkey. The donkey is inspiring, but the man that sat on the donkey is tragic. The story of Balaam's donkey is God can use anyone to be a blessing. But the story of the man who sat on her, it's a tragic reminder that Satan can use anyone to hurt anyone. And I want to talk to you about what I think is a very dangerous, subtle doctrine that has not only been a part of church history, but is a a problem for churches today, because Balaam's influence didn't stay in the Old Testament, it didn't stay within Judaism, it crossed over into the New Testament, it crossed into Christianity, and got into our churches, and it's been there for a long time. Let's read Revelation 2, we'll start in verse 12, Jesus is addressing the third of seven churches in this passage passage. And we read this in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things saith he that which hath the sharp sword with two edges. That's a reference to Jesus according to John, John's vision in chapter 1. Verse 13, he said, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Even where Satan's seat is. And we believe this to be a a pagan Turkish city under Roman control with many pagan temples. 
And he said, And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you. And he again emphasizes where Satan dwelleth. So let's just pause and appreciate this church. We've never met this church. We've never been to this church. We don't know anything about this church outside of Jesus honoring it for being in a very difficult area. Twice, he says, you're ministering where Satan's seat is. You're ministering where Satan operates. You're ministering in the center of Satan's kingdom. And he's saying, hey, I recognize where you are, how how hard this is. And so this church is no joke, or as your pastor might put it, uh, they're gamers. These guys and gals, they were dialed in, they, they held fast the name of Christ, and they produced a martyr. Something that is foreign to us in America. This church was a church like no church in America, at least in our generation. This church dealt with persecution that we don't understand. We can try to imagine, but we don't understand it. But one of their members was killed because of his faith. And I think you have to be an incredible church to produce a martyr. For somebody who's willing to die for their faith in a pagan culture, you've got to be a solid church. You've got to have solid truth. You've got to be on fire for God to some extent, don't you think? We have a hard time in our churches today getting people to take a stand against sin, let alone die for their faith. We have a hard enough time getting people back to church. I mean, I've got to say this, Brother Caleb, great job with a choir. I didn't take you for a choir director, by the way, but you had all the moves down. They were fantastic. I don't know why your brother gets picked on for sneezing in church. You should make up for it. But but your choir this morning, if you're in the choir, thank you for the attention to detail you give. That was excellent. I wasn't distracted at all by voices or by by people singing out of turn. It was harmonious and beautiful, and it allowed me to focus on reverencing God. Why do I bring that up now? We have a hard enough time in our churches today to take ministry and worship so seriously that we would give such attention to detail. Pastors will say to their people, hey, we need to do that better. We've got to give more attention to detail. And people say, oh, pastor, just relax. This isn't the Olympics. Relax, calm down, just take it easy. This is what churches now are dealing with. This church produced a martyr. Somebody who died for their faith. So these people are solid. But look at verse 14. But Jesus says to this angel, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. You say, who is Balaam? Well, Jesus makes sure that we know who he was by saying, he taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So let's just take a break. We're going to think together. I'm a fan of thinking through what the Word of God says. The Lord says, let us reason together. And I reserve the right to be wrong. Every time I get up behind the pulpit, I have to let you know that we are fallible men that can misread, misunderstand, and be deceived by our own hearts and by others. So I reserve the right to be entirely wrong on this, but I have been baffled by this church in Pergamos. I wonder, how can a church be so intensely uh, faithful to God that they would produce a martyr in the place where Satan's seat is 
And then have people who are teaching the doctrine of Balaam, which you might be assuming it means that we should eat meat offered to to idols and the devils and then commit fornication. And I just can't reconcile those two things. I don't know how a church who produces a martyr is in any way having a class where some teacher is suggesting that Christians fornicate and eat meat offered to devils. So I don't, I don't think that's what actually they were teaching. I think that Jesus is telling us Balaam had a belief, that's what a doctrine is, and that belief caused Balaam to teach what he taught, which is what we're going to read this morning. But I'm still trying to reconcile this church that had somebody who would subscribe to the doctrine of Balaam at a time when they were willing to die for the faith. But I know this much. The doctrine of Balaam was in a church that produced a, a martyr. I, I know then the doctrine of Balaam was alive and well 2,000 years ago, and no doubt in my mind after studying it out, it is alive and well today. The doctrine of Balaam survived thousands of years, was passed from generation to generation, and has been taught for centuries. And whatever it is, Jesus hates it and wants it out of our churches. And if a church like Pergamos, who produced a martyr where Satan's seat was, if they could have the doctrine of Balaam in their church, then there's no doubt my church back at home could have that doctrine. And Hope Baptist Church could have that doctrine. Without question. Hmm. It must be subtle then. It must be so subtle that nobody would dare question what someone is teaching is the doctrine of Balaam. It must not be obviously contrary to the truth of God's word. It must not be so obvious that anyone will be able to recognize it. So let's figure out what it is. Go with me to Numbers 22. Get comfortable in the Old Testament. Numbers 22. And let's identify this doctrine. And let me tell you, it is dangerous. It is so dangerous that you today could have this doctrine in your heart and not recognize it. And if you do, and if I do, we know Jesus hates it, and it's worth him saying, I have a few things against you, and that will be one of them. So let's figure out what this is. Numbers 22, we can't read the whole story, although I'll read plenty of it. But in Numbers 22, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, and they were, they were racking up military victory after victory. Uh, they had taken down some big guns. There was some momentum, momentum growing about where they were heading into uh, this part of the Middle East. And they came to the plains of Jordan, which... The Bible says it's near Jericho, and that's right about where Jesus would have gotten baptized years later. And we're talking about a place called Moab. Moab is where Ruth came from. It's just on the east side of the Jordan River. And the Moabites, who were quite the nation themselves, they were so concerned about the direction of Israel that they hired a guy by the name of Balaam. And he is a mysterious man. We don't know too much about him, but we know he was the big shot in the Middle East. When you want somebody to curse a people and make them vulnerable, make them fail, you hired Balaam. Because whoever he cursed, they were cursed. And if you wanted to bring a blessing to somebody, you hired Balaam. Because whoever he blessed, well, they were blessed. And so this guy named Balak hired this guy named Balaam to come curse the Israelites so that Balak could kill them in battle, assuming they would be weakened. So let's start reading in verse number 7. 
And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. And they came unto Balaam and spake unto him the words of Balak. And he said unto them, Balaam says to these guys, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. So Balaam goes in and tells God the story. These guys came to me. They want me to curse these people called Israel. In verse 12, God said unto Balaam, this is our God, the God of Israel. And God said unto Balaam, thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Genesis 12. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. And that's what they do. The princes of Moab go back to Balak, and they say, no dice. And the king refuses to accept that. So he gets more princes, and he sends them back to Balaam, and he asks him to reconsider. Verse 18. Verse 18. And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. So we're going to pause. i got to keep you in tune with the story. But right here, right now, don't answer out loud. Is Balaam, say, a good guy or a bad guy? Because so far what I'm seeing, I like what I see. He's offered a job, and he says, let me pray about it. He prays about it, and God says, don't take the job. And he goes back and tells the recruiter, sorry, I can't take the job. God won't let me take it. They come back and say, would you reconsider? And he says, sorry, I can't do. God said, I can't take it. If that guy's a member of my church, and that's how he handles a job offer, I'll take that all day long. If that's how my son offers a, or deals with a job offer, I would take that all day long, wouldn't you? Now you can answer. A couple of you would think so. All right. Let's go to verse number 19. As good as he is up to this point, we see a little sign of weakness in his next move. Verse 19, he says to these guys from Moab, Now therefore, I pray you, tarry also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me, more. So he didn't in any way compromise or do anything evil or wrong or unethical. He just like, guys, I can't go. God already told me no, but let me pray about it again. He said that because he noticed in their hands were the rewards of divination. Some type of cash, dinero, money. He was open to maybe God changing his mind. So let's see what God says in verse 20. And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, and uh, I'm sorry, if the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, thou shalt do. And verse 21 says that Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. I didn't see an if become a then there. Right? The, the, the Moabites didn't come back to his hotel room and, and knock on the door and ask him to come. They didn't. Balaam took a little liberties. He convinced himself that since they already came and asked me, God must have been referring to them already asking me, so he, he gives me liberty to go, which wasn't the case. Verse 22, and God's anger was kindled because he went. So now we have a little problem. Balaam is revealing his love for money. 
And that love for money twists God's word, twisted the circumstances just a little bit in his mind that he thought he could go. And in the second part of verse 22, we read that the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now, he, Balaam, was riding upon his ass and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand. And the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So that would be like your that would be like your Ford. Let's see. You said uh, Jeeps are built here. I can't pick on Chrysler. Okay, so that would be like your Ford just going off the road into the field for no good reason. What would you do? You would do what he did, which was in verse twenty three. And Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. So you'd hit the steering wheel and bring it back. And from here on forth, I'm not going to read everything that happens, but the, the donkey sees the angel Lord again standing in this alley, and the donkey, scared, jerks to the left or to the right, wherever it was, but he hit a wall, and Balaam's foot got crushed. And he got real angry, and he hit it again. And he brings that donkey back in the middle of the aisle, or the alley, and they get through this alley, and we don't know how much further, but they're going somewhere where, where the donkey can't turn right or left. And he sees the servant of the Lord again, this angel, rather. And what does he do this time? And he doesn't, his alignment's not off. He doesn't lose control. The engine just quits. And the, Bal- the donkey just falls beneath Balaam, gives up, and Balaam loses his mind, just like you or I would if our car had three issues on the same path. Verse 28. This is after Balaam hit his trusty four with his staff, and the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam said unto the ass, Because thou hast mocked me, my would there were a sword in mine hand, for now would I kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass, upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And I love this irony in the Bible. He's talking to a donkey. And now he starts talking like a horse. And he says, nay. I love it. It's just the irony. Verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, look, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. Now appreciate verse 34, please, with me. And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I knew not that thou shouldest, or that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displease thee, I will get me back again. And the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that thou shalt speak. So time is eluding me, so I'm going to go a little faster, but I want you to look behind me if you can, and assuming I do this right, I'm just going to put up here what we know thus far about Balaam. We know he responded well to that initial job offer. He went back into his prayer closet. He prayed. God said no. He went to the recruiter and said, I can't go. I'm going to obey God. He got the job offer again. He said no, but let me pray about it. Here's a little weak spot in his character. 
He didn't quite get what God was saying because he was greedy, but he responded well to chastening. God got into his life. God disciplined him. God exposed the problem. And he said, I repent. I get it. I'm sorry. He didn't fight it. He didn't try to overrule it. And he said, I'll go back if you want me to go back. And God said, no, no, no. You can go. Just whatever I tell you to speak, go ahead and speak that. And so he heads on, resolved, determined to do right. Now, what behind me is anything different than you and me? If that was your son or daughter, if that was your brother or sister, if that was your pastor, would you take that? A guy who wants to do God's will, a guy who does God's will, and because he fails, God chastens him, but he responds well to that and gets back on track. Isn't that like what we all want to be? I think so. Well, let's keep reading. Numbers 23. Turn to Numbers 23. And uh, the king finally gets Balaam there. He takes him to a place where he can see like the part of the Jewish people down beneath him. And he asks Balaam to bless them or to curse them. But Balaam proceeds to bless them. And the king is furious. Look at what he says in verse 12. And he said to Balaam, must I, or I'm sorry, Balaam says back to Balak when the king is furious, must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth? Like, I can only do what God wants me to do, so I'm going to bless Israel. That's another big thumbs up for Balaam. Balak says, all right, enough of this. I'll take you to a place where you can see all of them. Curse them. And Balaam blesses them. And the king is furious again. And he says in verse 26, I'm sorry, Balaam says in response to verse uh, Balak in verse 26, Told not I thee, saying, All that the Lord speaketh, that I must do? So we've got twice Balaam blesses the Israelites. Turn to Numbers 24. We're almost done reading the story, and then I'm going to make application for you. So hang in there. Numbers 24. Verse number two, and Balaam lifted up his eyes. This is the third time he wants to, uh, Balak wants him to curse Israel. And he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God came upon him. That's the Spirit of our God, that's the Holy Spirit that dwells in the believer. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said, which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open, how goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. He continues to bless them. Verse 8. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. And he couched, he laid down as a lion, as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. I'm going to add something more to this list behind me if I could do it properly. One more. Ah. Behind me you can see the story of Balaam in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. And behind me there's only one thing that I don't like what I see. He got a little greedy. He got ahead of God. But I'm okay with it because he responded to God's chastening. He repented and got right and was resolved to do right. So much so that God's spirit came on him. 
Something we should all be coveting and desiring to be full of the Holy Ghost, to serve God with the power of the Holy Ghost. And he blessed Israel three times. There are Christians throughout the world today that won't bless Israel. They're anti-Semitic. This man, this Gentile man, did everything right except for one thing, but responded well to that. So I see a guy that I admire. Let me show you one more thing. Verse number 17, the king had it with Balaam. He said, get out of here. And Balaam said, well, before I go, let me tell you one more thing. And this is important. Verse 17. I shall see him, but not now, referring to Jacob, Israel. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, that's Jesus, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, that's Christ, and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth, and Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that, have, that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. Hmm. Balaam saw things that you and I haven't seen. Balaam experienced a moment with God and his people that we haven't experienced. And as far as I can see, he did everything great. And the last verse of Numbers 24 tells us he goes home. And that's the end of the story. So where is the doctrine of Balaam that Jesus hated so much in Numbers 22, 23, or 24? It's not recorded. The scriptures don't record him saying anything but what God told him to say. The scriptures record him blessing the Israelites three times, never cursing them, but evidently he said something else. Evidently he said something that Moses didn't write on any paper. Evidently he said something so brief that it didn't make it on record. Evidently he said something off the record on his way out the door. And evidently, Balaam told the king that he wouldn't curse the Israelites. Because God said, I couldn't do that. But he said something that he thought he could get away with because God didn't specifically tell him he couldn't say that. And I put it up there earlier, so we'll do it again. On his way out the door, he said, hey, I'm not cursing the people of God. God won't let me do that. And I don't want to be cursed. I know people, for what it's worth, just throwing it out there, king, Balak, if you want an advantage over your enemies, I know how people work. It's all about male leadership. And men can't handle pretty girls, so have a great day, but just throw some pretty girls at them. You'll be fine. Mm. And evidently the king did that. Because in Numbers 25, we read about the men of Israel fornicating with the women of Midian. They're eating meat sacrificed to idols. And bad things are happening. And that tells me what Balaam's doctrine was that made it into the church at Pergamos. That tells me what Balaam's doctrine could be making it into Hope Baptist Church or making it into Calvary Heights Baptist Church. It's not the belief that Christians should eat things offered to idols or to commit fornication. No one does that. No one teaches that in a church, especially one that produces a martyr. No. It's the belief that the little things don't matter nearly as much as the big things. 
It's the belief that the main things are far more important than the minor things. It's the belief that as long as I do exactly what God told me to, to do, I don't have to worry about the things he didn't specifically tell me I couldn't do. And this is an incredibly subtle doctrine that when it gets into our hearts and when it gets into our minds, we're willing to do something that can do a great deal of damage to the body of Christ. And it has made it into many of our churches. The doctrine of Balaam resulted in the deaths of 24,000 Jewish people in Numbers 25. Balaam did everything right. He prayed about the job offer. He told the guys, I can't do it. Head out of here. They came back and he said, I can't do it. Let me pray about it again. He got that part mixed up, but God, but God chastened him. He repented of that. He said, I'll go back if you want. God says, no, keep going, but speak only my words. He says, okay. And he spoke only his words. He blessed Israel. He blessed Israel. He blessed Israel. The Holy Spirit came upon him. He saw visions of truth. But on his way out the door... Knowing he did everything right, the main things were right, he thought he could just say something tiny and short, off the record, king, for what it's worth. Just throw some pretty girls at him, and off he goes. And that little tiny thing that he thought fit the parameters of not disobeying God, because it wasn't a big deal, resulted in the lives of 24,000 people. Let me leave three suggestions to help you avoid the same doctrine, and I think it will make sense. Number one, if you do want to write anything down, don't forget what God has shown you about yourself. Don't forget what God has showed you about yourself. As good as Balaam may have been, he wasn't perfect as well as he initially did. He was obviously flawed. God knew about Balaam, what maybe himself he didn't quite recognize. There was covetousness in his heart. There was a dangerous breach in his spirit. God knew that he loved money and that the love of money is the root of all evil. And he knew that if Balaam didn't address this love for money in his heart, it would grow into a vine that would choke him and hurt many others. So God did what a good God does. God did what a gracious and caring and merciful God does. He exposed his sin. He introduced a supernatural, a divine circumstance that was intended to confront Balaam with his own sin so he could see it. It wasn't God punishing him. It was God exposing to him his error, his sin, so he could repent of that. God's so gracious to us to do that. And Balaam did initially respond with repentance and praise God for that, but he forgot that lesson. At the top of Peor, on the way out the door, he forgot what God showed him about himself. You should be asking yourself, why would Balaam do that? Why would he do everything right? Why would he obey God in the big stuff and then just throw that little nugget to the king of Balak? Why would he do that? Well, think about Balaam. For a living, he blessed people. For financial gain, he cursed people. He was the prophet who made a living on divining, working with God to do spiritual things. And if the word got out that he was hired by King Balak to go and curse the nation of Israel three times, and Balaam did the opposite three times, this man's reputation is in jeopardy. He won't get a job again. So on his way out the door, he sees the anger on the face of King Balak. He sees the disappointment on the faces of the princes of the Midians. And he just thinks, oh man, 
I got to salvage my career a little bit here real quick. Guys, I'm not going to curse them. God won't let me curse them. If you want the upper hand, throw some pretty girls at them. He forgot his own love of money because he forgot what God showed him. Charles Spurgeon said, Beware of no man more than of yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. Balaam was the plumber who took a job for his boss. And while he's looking at the job, he just says, well, it's going to cost this much. It's going to take this long. And uh, let us know if you want to do it. By the way, here's my phone number. It's my personal number. It's my mobile number. If I can answer any questions for you, just text me. He didn't violate any company policies. He didn't steal any job from anybody. But he intentionally insinuated he could help you out. He was ethical, but not really. And Balaam did the same thing. He said, well, I'm not going to curse him, but uh, pretty ladies will take care of that if if you want to do anything. Ladies and gentlemen, what has God revealed to you about yourself? What has God showed you about you? When that car broke down three times on the way to work... It wasn't coincidence. It couldn't be coincidence. It was obviously God trying to tell me something. What did he tell you? He's trying to help you. Solomon would say, The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. But the folly of fools is deceit. Don't fool yourself. You are who you are. I am who I am. Green eggs and ham. We are fundamentally who we were at birth. Do you know you? You might be the person that always blames everybody else for you. But if you look in the mirror, if you're prudent, you can look down the road, you can say, I see a problem in you. It is going to cause a problem if you don't address it. If your problem is money... You have to be aware of that every time you get online to buy something, every time you go into the store to buy something, every time you deal with a friend who wants to talk about money. If your problem is women, you've got to control yourself around women. If your problem is insecurity, you've got to control yourself around insecurity. You have to know your problem. And God loves us too much to let us go through life ignorant about ourselves. He brings things into our life to say to us, you have a problem. So that when you're on the top of Peor, about ready to get on your donkey, You look at that donkey and you remember what she said to you so that you get out of there before you say pretty ladies, before you say what you shouldn't say. If you don't remember these lessons, my friends, you'll eventually hold to the doctrine of Balaam. You'll focus on doing the big things right, but will justify not doing a little thing right. You say, what does that look like? God says we're supposed to tell the truth. Amen? So, I'm going to talk to Pastor John about uh, Craig. I'm going to tell Pastor John that he sneezes loudly. I'm not going to make something up. I'm going to tell the truth. But in the process, I'm going to gossip and not even recognize that I'm gossiping. All throughout Christendom, we talk and talk and talk, but this is the truth. It's the truth of the matter. I'm not making it up. It's true. But we're gossiping. We're destroying the unity of the brethren. We're not loving. Oh, but I'm speaking the truth. We focus on the big things. Well, I went to church three times this week. 
But all the while, while we're there, we're full of hatred, full of an evil spirit. Well, I give, I give, and I give a tenth, tenth percent of my income. But you're not doing it cheerfully. You see, we're focusing on the main things, and we think the little things don't matter to God. They do. That's the whole doctrine of Balaam. He says, I got all the big stuff right, but uh, pretty ladies. Ah, It's dangerous. Number two, real quickly, don't forget what God has showed you about himself. This is the wild thing. God did everything he could to help Balaam do the right thing. He put him through this moment with the donkey. He put himself through this amazing encounter where an animal's talking to him. It's unforgettable. It penetrates the mind and memory. But he forgot about himself. But he also forgot about what God showed him about God. Didn't God give Balaam a vision that we just read that had something to do with like Israel kind of like destroying everybody? <laughs> He's going to do valiantly, and he's going to destroy that people, and that people, and that people, and that people. Like, nobody can stand in the way of Israel. God's saying to Balaam, hey, you have a love of money, watch yourself. And by the way, don't mess with my people. They destroy anyone who gets in their way. So why, why in the world would Balaam make an enemy with the people of Israel? Because he forgot what God showed him about himself and about God. A year and a half ago, I was reading the Word of God, dealing with a particular issue in my ministry, and God revealed something to me about how He wanted me to treat some people. And it was unmistakable from God. God was making it abundantly clear to me, this is what I want you to do with these people from this point on. And for the past year and a half, it did not matter how I felt about these people or how I wanted to treat them. I was governed by what God showed me. Because once I learned what God thought, I didn't want to get on his wrong side. You and I, we got to learn what God's teaching us because he's helping us do right. But you have to be in the word of God to hear from God. Has God shown you about you? Has he revealed anything about you to you? Has he shown you how he feels about a particular person in your life, about a particular thing in your life, about a particular scenario in your life? If he has, don't forget it for the rest of your life. He may be teaching you something this week that he wants you to remember 30 years from now because he knows your tendencies he knows the future he's preparing to get you off of Mount Peor without saying something foolish that can hurt a lot of people see if you don't remember these lessons God teaches us you'll eventually hold to the doctrine of Balaam you'll focus on doing the obvious things right but the not so obvious not a big deal Real quick, finally, number three, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter three. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, I'm sorry. Don't forget what God has showed you about yourself. Don't forget what God has showed you about himself. And don't forget what God has showed you about a little folly. This story was written for our learning. Balaam's doctrine never made it on Moses' paper, but it made it in Jesus' letter. 
His belief wasn't heard by many, but it was heard by God. It wasn't part of the story in the Old Testament, but it would be a part of the judgment for Balaam. He thought a little suggestion wasn't a big deal. He thought a parting word wasn't a problem. He thought a little off-color statement wasn't a major issue. He thought the work he did off the books wasn't a major matter. He thought what he said off the record wasn't a big problem. He thought because he blessed Israel three times publicly that what he said quietly, privately, just real quick, one time, wasn't a big deal. I did all this right, so that doesn't matter too much. That was his false doctrine, his false belief. Don't forget that whatever we say off the record is still very much on the record. Jesus said, Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. You know what an idle word is? It's a word that you and I do not intend for it to go anywhere. That's what an idle word is. This morning when I took my prayer walk outside the hotel, there were all these big tractor trailers just idling. No intention to go anywhere. They were just idling. You and I get together all the time for lunch, for coffee, for dinner, for supper, for breakfast, for just, you know, chatting purposes. We say words that we don't intend to leave that conversation. And we think it's okay. God will judge every single one of them. Paul said in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. What is God teaching us all today through the story of Balaam? Everything we say, everything we do matters to God. Balaam did so much right. He did the big things right. But he just whispered something really quick, something really brief that destroyed himself and 24,000 people. Ecclesiastes 10, verse number one. Let me finish with this. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly. Him that is in reputation for wisdom And honor. The doctrine of Balaam made it into a church that held their faith in Satan's city. It made it into a church that produced a martyr. Can it make it into our churches? Can it wiggle its way into our hearts? I'm a second generation Christian. I grew up with Christian parents in a great Christian church. Do you know what we have learned to focus on growing up? The big things. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't fornicate. Make sure you're in church, read your Bible, pray. Those are all important. Those are the big things. But we're producing a generation that can do the big things well and not care about the little things. And this is what's killing us. The little things. Why would Pergamos, why would a church... So good, so strong, miss the little things. It's actually an easy answer. When you're ministering in a place where Satan's seat is, isn't it easier to say, I'm not like them? I mean, I don't worship Satan, I worship Jesus. 
and not care that gossiping is just as deadly and damaging as fornicating is in God's eyes. We, my brethren, we have to take everything we say and do as seriously as we take the big things that you see us say and do. Lest we foolishly deceive ourselves thinking we're fine when Jesus says, no, no, no. I have somewhere against you. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sobriety and gravity of the scriptures. Our hearts are so deceitful, we convince ourselves easily and quickly that we're fine. But it is the power and pointed truth of your word that reveals to us that so easily and often we're not. May your spirit speak to each of us. God, search our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.